to the Heartland Pod on today's episode. Party identity. Missouri State Representative and Attorney. Bill Parker and Sean Dillo will break down some of the biggest issues from the past week into that party identity question. So here we go. Welcome back to the Heartland Pod, an independent media podcast trying our best to bring political analysis and information while keeping our eyes and minds open to reality. We are bringing that middle out view to the political issues of the day as we hope to progress to a better future. I am your host, Adam Summer. I'm an attorney in mid-Missouri. For those who are new to the feed or have only listened to the Monday shows, make sure you subscribe and check out our other podcasts on the feed as well. On Wednesdays right now, we have the Marquise Govan Show. He's a young activist from St. Louis giving a view from that young progressive left. And on Fridays, we have the Flyover View, which bundles some of the most important stories from and impacting the heartland. Uh, We know you can find plenty of podcasts about what's going on in D.C., New York, L.A. So we focus on Missouri and Iowa and Kansas and Colorado, Arkansas, Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Nebraska, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Oklahoma, all the parts of the country that, you know, often seem this sort of nebulous flyover middle, as it were. Uh, And and we take it from that middle and we expand outward and, and we look at the national picture and the local picture and see how those things can help us inform uh, the other, uh, because they can, uh, especially states uh, like Missouri, where you've got uh, a city on each side and you've got a population in the middle and lots of rural areas. There's plenty to learn by looking at Missouri. Uh, we're totally independent also. So your support by leaving a review and a rating, uh, especially if you're listening on Apple, uh, a review and rating there is always huge. So thanks for listening and uh, let's get to the show. Politics with my usual co-hosts Sean Diller and Rachel Parker. Uh, we are going to dive into the Trump DOJ story because I mean it's just it's unavoidable. We've got to talk about it. Uh, some upcoming realities with redistricting of congressional maps that's going to be coming pretty soon. Uh, learn a little bit about cracking and packing, uh, and it is not has nothing to do with cooking. Uh, although probably is a there, I bet there's a chicken recipe out there. Uh, by that name, I would bet money on that. If not, we should we should invent it. It can be the Heartland cracking and packing chicken recipe. Uh, maybe we could do a YouTube video on that. Anyway, uh, also talk about the move in Missouri by the uh, GOP super majority legislature and governor to hamstring law enforcement and allow domestic abusers to keep their guns. Uh, very very interesting law that was passed. We talked about it some last week and kind of uh, the likelihood of it. Uh, you know. Immediately being seen as unconstitutional, uh, the Justice Department immediately clamped down, uh, and now we have statements from uh, Eric Schmidt, who said, we will fight tooth and nail to defend the right to keep and bear arms protected by the Second Amendment here in Missouri. Joe Biden can pound sand. Um, you know, because that's kind of their whole goal here. Uh, it's not actually about the Second Amendment. It's about looking tough and fighting against Joe Biden while you run for Senate. So that's really what this is about. Anyway. Um, Before that, I have a chat with Peter Meredith, a Democratic state rep here in Missouri, and we dive into what it's like being a state representative, party realities, term limits, a a bunch of good stuff with Peter, and and of course, a favorite things with him as well. He's an interesting guy. Uh, But first, I do have an opening statement about the religion of party identity. 
What party do you identify with? It's a question that plenty of folks don't really want to answer in mixed company, especially these days. It's a question that also lends itself to a slight bending of the truth depending on the audience. I'm a Missouri native. I've always found a political identity close to Teddy Roosevelt. What would that mean in today's politics? Where would Teddy fit? Right, He was a Republican when he was president. That's how he got his start. But Parties change over time. Platforms change over time. You know, we hear a lot uh, from Republicans. One of their favorite things to throw at a Democrat is that, you know, being a Democrat means that you're, you're the party that fought to keep the practice of slavery in place. Yeah, and that was true in 1864 and 65 and 66 and for a while after that. Uh, but it changed, right? The parties changed. They they kind of swapped places a little bit in a lot of ways. It's hard to imagine Teddy Roosevelt as a member of the Trumpified GOP. It's also hard to imagine him as a party line member of the Democratic Party. This is a former president who started his own party and labeled himself as a progressive. A progressive in 1912 was a pretty particular label. In modern politics, the GOP has worked really, really hard with propaganda to make terms like progressive, liberal, leftist, socialist, Democrat. They tried to tie them all to the word communism because they know it's a very effective attack for the base. Uh, on the right. They, they know that it strikes fear into people's hearts because communism still really scares people as this idea of, of this totalitarian regime that's trying to invade America, trying to take over our, our country. And don't get me wrong, communism is nothing to be advocated for, right? I, I, to, to quote Ferris Bueller, to uh, quoting John Lennon, I, I don't believe uh, in the Beatles, I only believe in me. Uh, I don't believe in anyism. Still, that's the whole point of it, right? Tie progressive to communism, and now you can use the word progressive as an attack. But progressive historically is hardly communism. In that election in 1912, Woodrow Wilson won as the Democrat with 435 electoral votes. Taft, the Republican, and Teddy's former VP gained only eight electoral votes. Roosevelt, as the progressive, earned 88 electoral votes. A school of thought was coming to be in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, one that Teddy surely fell into. It was called pragmatism. The label of being a pragmatic progressive was still in its infancy, but it would have fit well for the Bull Moose Party and Teddy. So what is it? Well, it's about focusing on a principle of progress as a society, but not letting the political temptations of an easy but immoral win take hold. It means not letting perfect be the enemy of good. It means not letting a tribal party label dictate what is good policy or good behavior or good politics. In 2021, extreme identities create a sort of religiosity to politics in which you must reject one party's ideas in full and label them as bad or stupid or dumb in order to prove your own allegiance to your party. We often uh, hear that being a leftist is a mental disorder, right? Or if you're a Republican, if you believe in Republican principles, it must be because you're just too stupid to understand something differently. That attack is levied both directions because it's an identity issue. It's not a politics issue. It's an, it's an identity issue. But what about things that are just good? What about loving thy neighbor? What about serving others? 
we become lost in justifying the behavior of our in-group, which necessitates the vilification of the out-group. Democrats want to blame Republicans for this. Republicans want to blame Democrats. But the reality is that the divide of the parties is desirable for the people with real power, for the moneyed elites. Blue versus red is a method of control. It keeps politics focused on small cultural differences. It leads to eight plus years of media coverage from the right painting Obama as an evil force, followed by five years of media coverage about Trump from the left as a figurehead of true evil in the world. Now, factually, the differences between Barack Obama and Donald Trump, they're real. They are demonstrable. As the investigations continue, we will no doubt continue to learn more and more about the Trump family mob. Sarah Kinzier and others have done well laying that out. But the political and factual differences are then lost in this cultural divide as each party ignores the negative to push that preferred narrative. Policy differences are lost in debates about if CNN is fair, if Fox is propaganda, if MSNBC is just a mouthpiece for the left. It becomes impossible to have a meaningful discussion about what an administration is actually doing. Objectivity becomes a luxury. Party identity becomes a religion. Religion leads to purity tests, adherence to dogma, to doctrine, tests of faith for those we perceive as an outsider. Party identity becomes anathema to pragmatic progress, an enemy of the good in favor of what the party says is perfect. As Dr. King said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. And now, here's Peter Meredith. Let's have a chat. All right, we're here for Let's Have a Chat. I have got Peter Meredith, uh, the Missouri representative for the 80th District, an attorney and uh, a member of MATA, so it's nice to have another trial attorney on the show. Mm -hmm. In your third of what is now limited to four possible terms in the Missouri House, uh, a well-documented fine singer, including Celtic Tunes. Peter, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for finding the time. I know uh, post-session, try to catch up on family stuff, so I appreciate uh, the uh, the time that you're sparing for us here on the on the podcast. No, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm in dad mode right now, but uh, I like to have these conversations so and keep working. So sure, keep you sharp, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, my first, uh, the first question I actually wrote down is uh, on a scale of one to ten. Okay, one being, what am I doing here? And ten <laughs> being, why does this ever have to end? Uh, how was this session for you? You know, I got to say, it depends on the day. Yeah. Uh, my entire time in the legislature has been a roller coaster ride yeah. of uh, of emotional states, we'll say. Um, I, I have felt more rage in my life than I ever did before this job, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, but I also have so many days where I cannot imagine doing anything else. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I guess I'm an addict to the, to the debate, to the causes that I care about um, and, uh, and to the fight. But on the other hand, there are so many days when I'm just banging my head against a brick wall and it can be a very frustrating experience, especially being the super minority in, in such a, a difficult state right now. But this particular session, I'll say, was uh, was one of the hardest I've had. But it's also, as far as outcomes go, one of the best we've had. There were some really brutal losses. But for the most part, um, we defeated a lot of the worst bills that were going through. And we got done a lot of, frankly... Um, somewhat democratic and bipartisan priorities. Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, it, it did seem like 
you know, there was a moment, uh, you know, a few weeks towards the end where it was like, boy, there's there's a lot of legislation that's about to really get jammed through. And then it, it seemed like a trickle of stories where it was like, well, this one's not going to happen. This yeah. one's not going to happen. This one's not going to happen. And then that little uh, <laughs> the little Senate stunt yeah. <laughs> at the end, <laughs> that had to be like, like, what was that like hearing that? Like, were you in session when you heard that? Or oh, that, we were, that had to yeah. be like, what? Well, we had heard that things were going down and uh, kept going out into the rotunda to find out what the status was, what's happening, what's happening. Are they going to, are they going to do anything else today? Are they going to do anything else today? And then all yeah. of a sudden we got word, they just adjourned till <laughs> Tuesday. We're going, wait, what? Because they can't come back on Tuesday and do any actual work because the constitution says they're done that day. Right. And so when we heard that, I mean, the house lost it for a, a minute. The house almost broke down as well too. Uh, a lot of Republicans were furious because sure. they had bills um, that they wanted to keep uh, wrapping up over on the Senate side. And I'll be honest, there were some things that we were pretty upset to see uh, not get done, like, you know, for uh, passing a specific bill to forgive the overpayments for un- uh, for unemployment insurance. Right. Um, there, there, were, there were a number of things like that that I would have liked to have seen get across the finish line. But overall, honestly, I was... I thought it was a good news. It meant yeah. that a lot of the things we were most worried about were definitely dead. Um, and frankly, it's nice to see Republicans fighting with each other for a change. <laughs> well, that seems to be, I had uh, uh, Jason Kander on a, a couple of months ago, and that was, he kind of highlighted that uh, from his time in the legislature that, you know, we we think of it in terms of Republicans versus Democrats, but that mm. like a lot of what's really going on is, is infighting within the parties because you've got folks like, uh, you know, Nick Shore is a, is a high profile mm-hmm. example where like, he's so busy trying to get on a microphone and make a video to put an American flag on the bottom of it <laughs> that like, you know, how could he possibly really be carrying the water that they want him to carry? When yeah. he's so busy doing that stuff, and I got to imagine that, I, and I'm sure that's happening with with Democrats too, from time to time. No question. It sure, no question. seems like that is like a huge chunk of at least the House yeah, Republicans. Yeah, we're certainly not all getting along every day on the Democratic side. Either sure, yeah. Each other, but but I will say that the Republicans are not nearly as united as uh, as they could be. There are there are times when they do ultimately all fall in line. And, and that's one of the frustrating things we experience where a lot of times we we get our hopes up about some of the Republicans that are more reasonable about certain issues. Yeah. But when push comes to shove, they get their arms twisted and they fall into line. Yeah. Um, but uh, this session was one of those where the division stood on a lot of things. And I think that's because some arms were twisted a little too strongly, perhaps at times. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it gave it gave people a little more courage to say, you know, this time I'm not falling in line. And, you know, things like uh, PDMP finally passed for the first time we'd been trying for a decade right. with the last state to get it passed. It passed because Democrats uh, supported it. It would not have passed without us. Um, in fact, a majority of Republicans opposed it. Same could be said of the gas tax. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it would have passed. There were, there were things like that, that there were a lot of, there was a lot of infighting among the Republicans, even the education bills. I mean, they passed that voucher bill by the precisely minimum number of votes right. needed in the House. Right. And there were a lot of Republicans that were very unhappy about how that went down. The ones that read the bill, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or the ones with uh, <laughs> the ones that are, are true to their district or their beliefs. Sure. I mean, honestly, there were a lot of them that were very unhappy because they did vote yes, because they were their arms were twisted in such a way that they right. felt like they had to. Um, 
And they weren't happy about that either. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I get that that does happen too from time to time. Yeah. Do it, it, my sense is that, uh, you know, we, so much of the politics that we hear about, and, you know, part of the reason we do this podcast is to help us kind of have another place where it's not just the mm-hmm. national conversation, but it feels like so much of what we talk about is, you know, when we talk about Republicans and Democrats, yeah. we're talking about Mitch McConnell and <laughs> Nancy Pelosi. And like, it, it seems to me watching the, the Missouri legislature closely this past session that it wasn't like watching the U.S. Congress, that there there's there's some serious differences in local politics and state politics that are that are sort of missed. There's totally missed because of that shorthand. And it seems like it does a disservice but to both sides. It seems like it's a disservice. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, to be honest, I think Democrats get branded with it more in Missouri than Republicans, yeah. um, uh, where we're just kind of considered whatever's happening on the national level is what people think of us as the party. Right. Um, and that's, as you said, kind of uh, not enough people honestly pay attention to what's happening on the state level. Um, the national media doesn't really cover it. They mostly just cover the national news right. and most people are watching national news. Yeah. Um, and it takes a lot of work to follow what's happening on the state level, but the fights we're having are much different. You know, when we're, when we're fighting about pocketbook issues, um, a lot of times we find that people who think they're on one side of the aisle, uh, really wouldn't be if they right. knew the issues we were talking about every day. And, and I'm glad people like you are talking about it because, I believe that's the number one thing we have to do as a state to to have better outcomes in our state legislature. It's it's for people to know more what's happening there. Yeah, yeah. And, and for people to understand that it's not, you know, like you highlighted, we could elect a supermajority of Democrats. Mm. It's not necessarily going to fix the issues. Just like, you know, when people – because, you know, people would think, well, there's a supermajority super of Republicans, so you get to do whatever you want. But we, we see very clearly that's not how it works. So we still have to have that nuance between the parties and people working together and people having real conversations, not just soundbite conversations. Oh, amen. You know, I mean, honestly, Democrats had a supermajority not that long ago. It's right. not like they passed the perfect set of policies, uh, right. that the Democratic wish list or anything like that. And frankly, that's because in order to have a bigger group, you end up with a broader coalition that doesn't always agree on stuff, right. um, especially among Democrats. Um, but I am generally a believer that balance is a good thing, that it's good to have people from multiple perspectives. The problem we have right now is, uh, people are so deeply divided in their camps that, that they're having trouble talking to each other. Um, we, we get behind the scenes, a lot of those conversations, but, uh, when, when we actually hit the floor and are debating bills, it's, it's really hard to, to keep that good conversation and dialogue and, and debate actually shaping the policy we're passing. So uh, part of that, I, I have the sense and, and you may disagree with this totally, but I have <laughs> the sense that like, like, for example, you're the ranking minority member on a handful of committees. Yeah. Do you think that's a good thing for somebody in their sixth year to be a ranking member? <laughs> uh, and like, you know, not, not, don't get me wrong. I, I've, I've followed you <laughs> closely enough to know you're a pretty I sharp guy. Agree. <laughs> uh, but like, Term limits to me just seem oh, yeah. like anathema to a working yeah. legislature. It's one of the worst things that ever happened in Missouri government. You know, it's it, it's the kind of thing that often sounds good to people because they, yeah. they get frustrated with the same names. They think people get entrenched. But the problem is 
you know, you don't want a doctor who's in their fifth year necessarily performing the, the toughest right. surgery on you. I want people that know what they're doing in the yeah. legislature. Yeah. And I'll tell you, this year was eye-opening to me more than more than any of the previous four, because all of a sudden, I mean, I'm not just ranking member on budget. I'm basically the most senior member of budget, uh, along That's with a wild. couple of Republicans. Um, and and to be in my sixth year, and I, I, we're, we're having debates on things, I'm going, oh my God, don't you guys remember three years ago, we debated this exact same thing. And then I, of course, realized, oh no, they don't remember that. <laughs> you can't remember because most of them, here. <laughs> most of them weren't here. Um, and so- you just don't get to build up a bank of expertise yeah. um, uh, on on things. And uh, honestly, it takes so much time and investment to to dig into this stuff that even people that are here five or six years, most most don't have the time to dig in. Yeah. They also don't have the incentive, frankly, to do it because as soon as you start to get a deep grasp of the issues or build a strong relationship with people on the other side of the aisle in order to... to to really work on complex issues, as soon as you have that, one or both of you is gone. Yeah, they're gone. Um, and, and you don't have the incentive to build that relationship. You don't have that incentive to build the knowledge. And we end up with lobbyists being the people that know the most uh, right. about how to get things done, about what's been tried before, about what works and what doesn't work. Um, lobbyists and you know Republicans like to say unelected bureaucrats, but damn, if we didn't have that staff there, yeah, I'll tell you, we wouldn't have a damn clue what we're doing. Right. Um, uh, so I'm I'm grateful we at least have them, but it would sure be nice if we had uh, legislators with more experience there as well. Yeah, and that it, it you hit on the thing that I think it's lost the most with term limits, which is that that ability to get to know somebody in a way that is meaningful, is deep, and builds a trust so that you can say, "Hey, I need you on this one, and I'm going to get your back on something later, and you know that I will." Because we've been doing this for 10 years together or 12 years together and you can trust me to do that. But instead, because isn't it if – I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly, if you get your eight years in, you get the prize, right? What, what prize is that? <clears throat> well, you get continued uh, health care, right? Well, you get that after your fifth year, I believe. Fifth year, right. Um, yeah, you vest after five. Uh, the, the, and the pension. Um, yeah. But – but I'll tell you, I mean, and I know it's not a lot. Well, yeah, I know most it's people not are not doing this job for the money. I'll tell you that. Uh, right. I, I took a pretty massive pay cut to, sure. to go do this. And it, honestly, I spend all I spend all year trying to recruit people to run for office, and it's a tough sell. Yeah, because um, it's a pretty brutal job with five months a year away from your family, oh, campaigning all year. It's absolutely um, not enough money for the work you're actually having to do. I mean, it's just not. Exactly, um, and and so. I don't think, I mean, I don't really think that's why the, why most people are there. Uh, sure. The pension is nice to get. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it well, you're just, also having to start your career. Issue. You're also having to start your career all over again after right. essentially an eight year break right. from it. Right. Um, and, and refigure out your place in the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's that incentive um, issue though, that you would, you would hit on that. I'm, that I'm kind yeah. of getting at is like, no, totally. what, what is, you know, why wouldn't you just try to get eight? So that you can max that out, you know, you got to get to five and then why not try to get eight? And if that's your whole goal, then why don't create know. the relationship on the other side? I don't know. What I see is people leaving even before the eight um, because because they don't know what their next step is going to be. Yeah. Uh, you can't do this as a career. Um, and so when another opportunity arises, uh, a lot of times people have to jump on it. Yeah. You know, I came in and and started to build really strong relationships with the budget chair and the vice chair at the time, who I still consider friends. But 
by three years in, they both left. Yeah. Um, and they, they were not, they had, they had more years in them, but they left because, you know, Scott Fitzpatrick is now the, tr- the state treasurer. That spot opened up. Well, he moved on to it. People right. run for Senate when the Senate spot opens up. Um, and, uh, you know, the vice chair, Justin Alferman went and uh, found he could consult with, uh, um, healthcare, uh, with the hospitals and, uh, find more of a career in that, a fulfilling career. And I don't blame them, but it's sure frustrating because you have to start building those relationships from scratch and it just, it starts to not feel worth it when you don't have time to do it. So you've sponsored uh, a pretty pretty good handful of legislation. Uh, there's a marijuana bill in there, gun safety, police reforms, insulin cost reform. Uh, one of the ones that I find most interesting uh, is the National Popular Vote Act. Hmm. Uh, that you sponsored that for Missouri. So w- why? I mean, do you, are are you a full blown abolish the electoral college kind of <laughs> guy, or uh, you know what what's your what's your point there? Well, you know. I- I, I do believe the, the electoral college uh, should go. Um, I think that right now we have a system that is designed uh, not to actually represent uh, the voters, but to allow people to manipulate the vote. And it makes it makes Missouri uh, almost meaningless in the presidential election, which is yeah. really frustrating. We saw that this last cycle where, you know, uh, Biden administration didn't I mean, the Biden campaign didn't spend much of a dime in Missouri right. because it was written off. And that's true. Most years it's becoming truer every year. Uh, so it's a handful of states that end up mattering the most uh, because of the Electoral College being an all or nothing with each state. Um, now, the main reason I filed the bill, though, truthfully, is I got more emails on that topic than probably anything else really? in the off cycle last year. People huh. saying, please, I've had enough. This needs to go. And I do believe that there is a path for the states to do that ourselves. Um, and so I wanted to I wanted to represent all those people that that asked me to file it. I do believe that that the electoral college doesn't work and should go. I think that there are a whole lot of other problems in our system too that kind of represent that same problem of democracy struggling right now. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to see a more democratic system than we currently have. I wish I had a better argument against it because I I keep finding myself trying to defend the electoral college and <laughs> and I'm. I'm fairly convinced at this point that my best argument is just like, I just like it. Like, I just like the, (laughs) like, I know the numbers really well. I'm really comfortable with the math. The gaming of the election is right for political nerds. Right. Yeah. It's D and D. (laughs) But it ultimately makes it where not every vote counts the same. Right. And I generally think in an election, every vote should count the same. Uh, Otherwise we're really just uh, empowering a very specific status quo minority groups yeah, um, and basically groups that are already in power. Uh, we're, we're enabling them to maintain that power more effectively. And I don't yeah. think that's how democracy is supposed to work. We had a debate episode about that back in the late summer, early fall, which is all of our episodes are available. So if anybody's interested in that, you can go back and find it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I took the position and I did the, I did the work. I, I, I showed my work. I did the math. Um, where if you made every single electoral vote representative of basically 600,000, if that was the the benchmark. So there's a ton of states that would go down to one. Uh, you know, Wyoming is, is a key example, Idaho, stuff like that. Uh, Missouri wouldn't change at all. Hmm. 
because uh, we've got about 6 million people. So Missouri would still be the same. Texas would go up. California would actually go down. Some Republican states would go up. Some Dem- some blue states would go down. Um, but the, the end result would be a significantly more uh, you know, genuine representation of what's actually out there while maintaining the electoral college in place as a system for the, you know, sort of that check uh, in the system. So anyway, <laughs> that's, that's out but there. Why? Right. And then why is because like, <laughs> but, I don't but, know, cause I'm a say, dork. <laughs> but, and even so, I mean, you end up with a situation where uh, if, if that were my primary concern, that whether each state had a proportional share, right. Um, then I would have, I would be more upset about the structure of the U.S. Senate, right? Which is sure. two senators for every state, right. even when one state has seventy times the population of another state. Right. Um, I, I think the the other problem with the electoral college, though, is because it's all or nothing. States that lean heavily one direction get written off, and there's they, no point they don't in campaigning exist. in them. Yeah, there, yeah. Right, there's zero point in campaigning in them. If you know which way it's going to go, you're going to spend all your resources campaigning in the states that you can actually change the outcome in. Right. Um, and uh, if you get rid of that and make it an actual popular vote, uh, well, then all of a sudden you have to campaign to every individual voter equally. Any right. place that you can flip voters flips the outcome right. similarly to any other place that you do it. And so right. I just think every vote should count the same. And, and it's really that simple. What, what about the, I didn't write this one down. Now I'm just curious. <laughs> um, so I think, I think, for example, Missouri would be a great place where we could maybe find uh, a good reason to do this proportional representation. Mm. Uh, because, you know, Missouri, for example, you look at St. Louis and Kansas city and, and sort of the immediate surrounding area, you're going to get uh, very similar, not totally, but you're going to get plenty of similar folks. And then as you go out and get into the rural areas, you know, you're going to find a different mix of folks. Um, but but there's different types of Republicans, like you highlighted. There's different types of Democrats. So would that be more useful, perhaps, and more more meaningful as a way to get work done? I mean, I'd be. I, I've always been fascinated by moving in that direction, more like a parliament uh, parliamentary model. Yeah. Um, it would also allow more parties, I think, uh, to have strength, right? Um, uh, because your vote for the party essentially creates representation from them. And so rather than most people feeling like neither party actually represents them, um, they could actually push to be represented by someone that does. Um, I I generally would be open to more creative things like that, but uh, that sounds pretty radical for a state like Missouri. And I don't think, I don't think people are going to be looking for that anytime soon. I think, I think in the near term, uh, we should be talking about reforms like uh, uh, ranked choice voting. Yeah, uh, and things like that that really start enabling people to to vote a little more. And frankly, I'm a supporter of of a stronger, more robust, uh, direct democracy. Uh, I believe in the ballot initiative process. Yeah. Um, I believe in making it more accessible to people, not less. Mm. Um, I generally think people take their take more time in voting um, in informed ways on issues than on people or on parties, yeah. which can be very confusing. Um, you're voting for somebody that may represent you some of the time and not all the time yeah. or picking between two people you don't like, but on issues, people can vote how they feel about that issue. And I, I think that's an important option. You know, right now the legislature is pushing the opposite direction to make it harder for people to access that ballot initiative yep. because they don't like how people have been voting when they're given the choice on issues. Um, and, and I really, I, I filed a bill every year since I've been in office to allow people to gather signatures electronically. 
for ballot yeah, I saw that, the online initiative one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it costs $1.5 million roughly to get something on the ballot because you're paying people to stand outside of stores and, and grocery stores and whatnot, asking people to sign something they don't, frankly, have time to read right. or know what they're signing. I think that that this day and age, uh, especially post-COVID, we've seen and, and recognizing more and more about folks that are homebound and things like that, yeah. people should be able to sign this from, from their home. Uh, when they have time to look at what they're signing, to read about it, to read pros and cons and uh, uh, sign electronically like we do in every other part of our society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I signed for my last house electronically. That yeah. Seems like, <laughs> that exactly. seems like a pretty I'm important si- thing. I'm signing a, a refinance right now and I, I was thinking the same thing. Man, <laughs> if this is secure enough for a bank, surely we, and, and honestly, it's more secure than a physical signature anyway right. because you have things like IP tracing you can do to look That's for right. fraud. Um, there are lots of ways to protect that that you really can't do with just a handwritten signature. I think that, <laughs> that makes a ton of sense. Well, that would be fun to see. Uh, let, me, let me shift gears. I've got some fun stuff here. A yeah. uh, little segment I call the favorite things. All right. Your favorite things. Uh, number one, your favorite thing about being a representative. You know, I, I love talking to advocacy groups and community groups of people about what is happening in the legislature. I love giving them updates about the details of the ins and outs of the fights that are happening. And I love strategizing with them about how best to accomplish their goal. Um, I really enjoy that. But I also honestly just love the debate. I love sitting in committee hearings and uh, asking tough questions of people that um, that are pushing bills that I think are terrible um, or identifying ways to improve bills that could be better. I really enjoy that process. I yeah. enjoy arguing. I enjoy um, identifying pros and cons of, of policy. Um, I, but it's the policy work that I love the most. I, I, I hate to say it, but the part I, I like the least, I'll tell you, is the fundraising for campaigns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it sounds like you just really, really, really miss cross-examination. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found that this is, this is the kind of cross-examination I like the best. Because, you know, with this... I'm trying to find out what the best policy is. I'm trying to find out just sincerely. I'm not representing a specific client's interests and trying to, you know, push them whether they're right or wrong. I'm just trying to find what's best for people. And yeah. I love that about the job. Yeah. It's sort of the ideal kind of lawyering in my mind. Sure. Yeah. All right. Number two, what is the, your favorite Missouri thing that you've discovered by being in the legislature? <laughs> um, boy, well, I have spent more time traveling the state uh, in, since my time in the legislature than ever before, for sure. Yeah. Um, and so seen parts of the state that I, I really didn't know existed. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you the thing I've spent the most time learning about in the legislature that I never knew anything about prior, feral hogs. Boy, <laughs> yep. I have spent so many hours learning about feral hogs. And seriously, they are a massive Ser- problem. Yeah, a genuine and, problem. And I... I had no idea. And uh, it was super interesting to learn all about that and also try and figure out what the heck we're supposed to do about it. Yeah. Um, because it is a, it is a problem with no simple solutions either. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's been one of the more interesting things I've learned about. That is a very particular, yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, all right. So number three, uh, what is your favorite song? And I'm, I'm make sure I get this right. Your favorite song that you sing with, is it the wee heavies? The, the wee heavies. The wee heavies. Yeah, okay. we're, we're a wee bit heavy. 
Ah, okay. No, it's like it's like the the wee heavy is a, a beer. I, it's a I Scottish was, beer. I got you. I was trying to Celtic yeah. it too much. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, it must be pronounced all weird. So we've got a song called "Pound a Week" that I absolutely love. Uh, you can find it on YouTube and and hear it. Actually, it's it's just a great tune, a killer arrangement. Uh, it's a cover a cover of someone else's song, but uh, one of our one of the guys in our group arranged it, and I just think it's super cool. But I also one of my favorite things we've done as a group was. Um, we sang Shenandoah, um, mm-hmm. in the, uh, whispering gallery at the top of the Capitol. Ah, very cool. Um, we videoed that that's on YouTube too, but man, that was, that was super cool with our kids up there. Uh, just kind of on the fly went up there and sang and a friend of ours videoed it. That was, that was pretty cool. That sounds very cool. I'll have to throw, I'll throw some links into the show. So if people are interested yeah, in that, you can do that, especially if you're on the Andori app, we can, uh, it'll come up live actually right now. If you're on the Andori app, you're looking at the link cause <laughs> I put it in there. I swear. So, well, Pete, uh, thank you very much, man, for your time. I appreciate it. And I'll yeah. let you get back to doing your thing. That's oh, my pleasure. Hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Talking politics. We're here for talking politics. I have got Sean Diller. I have got Rachel Parker. We are rolling through the end of Father's Day here. So, uh, since it's Father's Day, we'll start with Sean. Happy Father's Day to you. And how you doing? What you sipping on? Oh well, thanks so much, and Happy Father's Day as well to you. And uh, yeah, things are good. And uh, maybe it's because it's father's day, but I'm, I'm drinking the beer of my childhood. If there is one, uh, <laughs> it's a Miller high life. Yeah. 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 Miller high life. Cheers to that. That's long storied history with the high life. The, <laughs> the beers had a couple of those, at the Royals game the other night, Rachel, how are you doing? What you sipping on? I'm great. Uh, it, it was a lovely father. We had a really great family weekend. My sister through my little six-year-old niece's uh, birthday party yesterday. Nice. So the family was together, and I haven't seen like that section of the family since COVID, so that was really lovely. And I thought like, the kids are all two years older yeah, because I haven't seen them since we didn't have a birthday party the last year or the year before. It was crazy. So everybody just looks massive. Yeah. Um, little boys are now like they have shins that are like <laughs> trees. I don't know what's going on. They're all just getting really big, and everybody can talk and – there's missing teeth. It's awesome. Uh, and then today we went to uh, my dad's house and uh, in true, true post COVID form, I made uh, homemade hoagie rolls, which is really exciting. Mm. And they passed the, so we had delicious sandwiches that passed the tomato test. Like, you know, when you, Oh yeah. You want is you want a good hoagie roll when you bite into it, but the tomato does not projectile out the back. That's right. That's and right. so these were uh, lovely feathery light, delicious buns. And, um, and I'm uh, my dad enjoyed himself very much, and I'm uh, I'm sipping on some water because I had some wine earlier. So. There you go. Yeah, yeah, it's almost uh, officially tomato season here in the Heartland. Good season, oh, right. tomato season. It's the best time of year. Nothing like it. Yeah, there's nothing. Best like time it. of year. We had some okay ones the other day. We had some BLTs and. Uh, so I made some fried chicken last week, and so then we had some BLTs. We're like, summer is here. <laughs> it's fried chicken and corn and BLTs and. And going for it, yeah. Had a good, had a great Father's Day here. Great weekend. Took uh, my own six year old to the uh, Royals game on Friday, or on, I'm sorry, my wife took him on Saturday. I took him a couple weeks ago. Uh, I went to the Royals game on Friday myself. Uh, had some high lifes, and uh, uh, he got to go to the Saturday game. And then we had an awesome day today. Did some fishing and made a brisket, and had some family that hadn't seen in a long, long time. hadn't even hadn't met my two younger kids at all. Um, wow. So that was really cool. Uh, they got to come out and we got to 
share lunch and some time. And uh, now I'm sipping on uh, Templeton Rye Barrel Strength, uh, which is fairly new uh, and a new commodity. So uh, if you if you know the Templeton Rye, made out of Iowa, good good stuff and uh, wonderful Heartland spirit. So the right. Templeton named after the rat in Charlotte's Web. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <laughs> that would be really funny if it's it a was. Great character. <laughs> Um, so this, uh, this week on talking politics, so we've got the second amendment preservation act. We've got the, uh, Trump DOJ, uh, wiretap stuff. Uh, we've got some redistricting and then we'll, uh, hit a last call at the end here about party identity, uh, kind of going along with uh, the opening statement. So second amendment preservation act, we have talked about it prior. Uh, it was signed into law by the governor, uh, and as predicted by, us and pretty much everybody who has, you know, really been talking about this, uh, at least with some level of objectivity at all. Um, it's very clearly been done as a political messaging uh, tactic. Uh, there's a circus around it. Uh, Eric Schmidt has uh, been using it to try to make hay for his Senate race, trying to posture himself as, uh, you know, this law is fighting against the Biden administration's, uh, you know, big gun grab, which of course they haven't done um and all of the you know all of the it's like the definition of a boogeyman right, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and all, all you know all the things they're trying to fight against uh, existed uh before uh, any of this was passed so i've got a little bit of the, some text from the bill that i want to uh, lay out here really quickly uh and i'll i'll put the entirety of the bill into the show notes uh and if you're listening on, on the indoor i've mentioned this but the indori app this should pop up as a thing in the middle of the show that you can click on. But anyway, so this particular bill, it's uh, HB 85 is how it's being passed around uh, through the media reporting. And it starts out by saying that it declares laws, rules, orders, other actions, basically anything that possibly happens from the federal government that would infringe upon uh, you know, the ability to own uh, firearms or accessories or ammunition uh, within Missouri, uh, in including registration, tracking uh, of any kind, uh, that, that's nullifying uh, that, which we talked about nullification laws previously and how ridiculous they are. Uh, $50,000 fine per occurrence uh, for this to occur, along with attorney's fees and immediate injunctive relief. Um, <laughs> but it does, it does, the law does make a point to say that the, uh, the federal excise tax on arms and ammunition is fine. That's just fine. So the federal government can tax your guns uh, as a regulation on your guns. They, they've accepted that part. Um, Why? <laughs> are they just weenies? Spineless? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are they afraid? <laughs> what what the exactly hell is wrong it. with them? I yeah. That's, that's exactly it. Um, uh, felony crimes against a person when such prosecution includes weapons violations substantially similar to the ones that they're trying to nullify are fine as long as the weapons violations are ancillary to such prosecution. So whatever that means uh, how for does that, that purpose. How does that work? So does that, so, so does that mean that if I, if I pistol whip someone, that if the gun, if the, if the pistol with, with which I whip someone is an unregistered firearm, that that's an ancillary, ch- like, what does that even I mean? Great law I think you question. probably hit the nail on the head. That's yeah, probably that great. <laughs> <laughs> great hypothetical. They say don't make hypotheticals on the fly, but that was a really good one. What about, okay, I have another one. What if 
you are, say, uh, I don't know, you just, I mean, criminals tend to have all kinds of illegal stuff on right, them when right. you bust them. They break a lot uh, of laws at once. They usually. break many at once, usually. Usually it's not like an isolated thing where it's like, well, is that just a kilo of cocaine in that one group? No, like we've got a lot of it. Um, right. And a bunch of like, because they, you know, like black market is all about selling things that you can't get. So, like, I think what that means is like, well, if you bust somebody and you're like there to investigate them for cocaine distribution or opioid distribution or whatever, if they also happen to have like a rail car full of illegal, you right. know, machine guns or something, that's ancillary. Like what? what the, yeah, like, maybe. What the, maybe. I don't know. That's, it's that's so where it stupid. It's such like cartoonish, like. Why don't we just instead of having a legislature, why don't we just get all of them monopoly and they can just roll <laughs> the dice and just be like, these are the laws now. Like, this is how it went. Cause those make it actually like a game of monopoly would make more sense than this particular bill. It's so poorly worded. It's written to be shot down in court. Like it's, it's right. not even a law. It's so lazily written. It's yeah. horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Of course, it's not just a Missouri issue. Uh, I, I obviously, we're talking about the Missouri language, but Arizona Second Amendment Freedom Act uh, states on a list that have similar laws, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, Kansas, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, South Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, duh, West Virginia, and Wyoming all make this list, all are very recent uh, attempts at this. Uh, they're not identical, but they're all very similar. Not a shocker. We've talked about Project Blitz a ton uh, before. So, uh, Sean, what, what, are you, what, are your, what are your thoughts here? Well, you know, I wanted to have my numbers right because I think we did talk about this last week. And, you know, intimate partner violence with guns and, you know, how the need for you know, so in Colorado, we ha we passed a red flag bill where, mm -hmm. you know, and this is an extreme risk protection order. And the way that it works is if you live with someone, you know, maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's your parent or maybe it's your child um, and, and it could be your roommate, but someone you live with, if they're talking about they're going to kill someone or kill themselves and right. they have guns, you know, you can call the police and the police don't come and take their guns away, but then a judge will get this case and they'll say, you know, what's going on. People have a second amendment right to bear arms in this country. You know, we're not going to take their guns away, but right. you know, there is a role for the government to play in keeping people safe also. And so, you know, a lot of States where people are getting killed, you know, have passed these type of laws and there is a need for something like this at the federal level, I think, because guns have become so politicized and, you know, it's not really about good policy or protecting people anymore. It's about this right. just really um, hysterical sort of fear of having having your guns taken away. Um, but every month, an average of 57 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner. Nearly 1 million women who are alive today have reported being shot or shot at by an intimate partner. A million women who are alive today. Wow. Um, and so, you know, these laws, I think, you know, this is where, this is what these laws are about. You know, it's about nullifying if there was going to be a federal red flag law. And I think, right. you know, 
it's just really sick, you know, I, and it's just, I can't, I can't get over it. The the thing that's the most, so some, so federal gun laws, the ATF is one of the was one of the oldest federal law enforcement agencies in America. I think it predates the FBI, right? right. It, I believe the ATF was born during prohibition, which I'm not a huge fan of prohibition, obviously. Um, but often, so, so, you know, when you're trying to, and again, like I, I think all guns should, I think all guns, I think all drugs should be legal tomorrow. All of them should be decriminalized and legal. I don't care. Um, I think we need, I think drugs are a healthcare problem, not a criminal problem, but um, people that, that deal in illicit substances and it, like they commit violent acts while they're doing it. Right? right. And so there's all kinds of crime that surrounds crime. We were just talking about that a second ago. Right. And so often prosecutors will use and law enforcement will use secondary charges because it is how they can most easily prosecute someone who's dangerous. Right. So right. whether or not it's, it's, if it's, it's possession of illegal firearms, whether or not it's trafficking illegal firearms, it's a little bit like when they busted Al Capone for tax evasion. Yeah. When you're trying to clear a murder, when you're trying to clear the streets of someone who's dangerous and violent, um, and we can talk all day about how these you know laws are inappropriately applied, applied to people of color and all kinds of other stuff, but at the same time, um, if you're trying to say stop a bunch of like I don't know human human traffickers, which does happen, um, if what you have on them in front of you as a prosecutor is a firearms violation, you yeah. can put them in jail. Yeah. So you're taking away this valuable tool. I'm not like, I'm not a law and order person. I'm just saying like how law and order people talk and how they typically look at um, their ability to prosecute criminals. They want every available federal law on the table, period. End of right. story. That's it. Right. And law enforcement officials are no fans of large, large amounts of illegal ammunition just floating around the country, period. Yeah. I should say munitions. Like they're not, they, they it's dangerous. It's scary. Um, generally speaking, law enforcement wants, uh, I don't know that I would say stricter gun control, but they certainly want the ability to be able to prosecute people who shouldn't have law, who shouldn't have guns for a wide variety of reasons. So the, the, the fact that we're at this point in the, the, the bulk of the country, right? We just talked with the, how many, how many 17, 18 States you just mentioned. So yeah. give or take a third of the United States that we're at this point where, Republicans are so bad at leadership. They're so bad at it that they just have to do this cartoonish nonsense to appease the base, even though there's no thought towards the unintended consequences of what these laws would do and if they no, actually stayed in the books. Yeah, yeah, and there's no problem where like people are having their guns taken away. That's right. a, you know, a oh, given. It's totally a solution. It's, it's totally repeating. a solution. It's yeah, it's totally a solution in search of a problem. It's ridiculous. Right. right. And and what you're saying you know, about law enforcement is it's not that's not uh, speculative, right? It, it is proof is in the pudding. The story is everywhere. The O'Fallon police chief, uh, who is you know, he he's the the chief of a fairly large city in the state of Missouri, uh, right in the heart of an area that is held almost completely, it probably is completely Republican represented in the state legislature. Nick Schroer, who we've talked about many times and has blocked us on and Twitter. he co-sponsored the bill, right? Right, Didn't right. Schroer res- exactly. so we're talking about the represent the city that's represented by one of the people that sponsored this bill in Jefferson City. Right, probably clear. the most populous city in his uh, district, uh, like pretty easily. 
um, resigned. Uh, this this chief, uh, Dupuis, D-U-P-U-I-S, uh, so whatever, take that as you will. Uh, he said, the poorly worded language removes sovereign immunity and appears to allow law enforcement agencies and individual police officers to be sued, because it does. Uh, for even good faith justified seizures of firearms in emergency circumstances, also says the vague language will create a flood of weaponized litigation that will chill the legitimate peacekeeping duties of police. So this is on its face, according to uh, an experienced police chief, uh, this bill directly undermines law enforcement's ability to do their job. And it, <laughs> it's it's just right. so wild. And again, like, it's not that we're standing here to say, like, we need more police on the streets. Like that, that's, that's not what this is about. This is, this is about the hypocrisy. It's about the two-facedness. It's about on the one hand going to rallies with American flags that have been doctored to be gray with a blue line through them to show your support of police and using blue lives matter as a rallying cry for your base against black lives matter as if your choice of a job and the skin color that you're inherently born with are somehow interchangeable, which is a whole other topic. Uh, and then on the other hand, turning around and passing a law that is a complete bitch slap to the law enforcement that you've been talking about and using as a political talking point. It's just ridiculous. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and I'm going to, my bet is Dupuis. Dupuis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's, but, that's my guess. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, you know, he says it will decrease public safety. Like you said, decrease public safety and increase frivolous lawsuits designed to harass and penalize right. good, hardworking law enforcement agencies. And I've knocked on a bunch of doors in O'Fallon and it's a really interesting place. It, um, it is a, you know, densely populated, rapidly growing suburb about 30 miles from downtown St. Louis, maybe a little less. And it's one of these places where you'll see a lot of double yard sign households. And uh, right, those two right. yard signs are proud union home yep. and blue lives matter. That's right. And I got bit by a dog in O'Fallon. I've knocked on a lot of doors. <laughs> I have not been bit by that many dogs, but I did get bit by a goddamn dog uh, in O'Fallon. Uh, so yeah, that's what we're talking about. But, like it's it's important. So for people that that uh, that's I'm sorry, Sean. Sorry that happened to you. Um, that's what you get for that's that's what okay. you get for canvassing in, o, in O'Fallon. Um, <laughs> now uh, people are going to wildly extrapolate that anecdotal story into like. Canvassers get bit by dogs in O'Fallon. So yeah, so if, if anybody saw this, <laughs> if anyone's been to my website and you saw pictures that I posted of and what is nature that who we were just talking about with the McCloskeys at like some tractor thing that was right, like a, right. a rally for Trump, basically. <laughs> pole. It a wasn't tractor a tractor pull. pull. It was like a tractor oh. parade. It was so dumb. It wasn't, yeah, a, it tractor wasn't a tractor pull. pull. Yeah. It oh, was like right. it was okay. like flatbeds with like farm equipment on them. It was just so it was it was so okay, uh, performative. Yeah. And uh, that was in O'Fallon. So we're talking about like one of those places in Missouri that Republicans love to campaign in because they all get to put on their flannel shirts and pretend like their country. Yeah. Because it's it, it if you're uh, under thirty, you can remember when most of that part of this of the county was still farmland. Like it's yeah. just recently been turned into yeah. into subdivisions. So this is a very I would I don't know that I would call it affluent, but it's squarely middle class. I would say right. aspirationally affluent. Um. And you can buy a really nice house for less than two hundred thousand dollars, probably still just around <laughs> not in there. Not this market. <laughs> not yeah, not you could, you yeah. could, and it it is a squarely like super white, very conservative, massively religious, 
Um, I, I, I'm certain that they have a very different profile of uh, both crime and uh, crime per capita in O'Fallon than they do in, say, the city of St. Louis. Yeah. Um, where Tashara Jones cooperated, Mayor Tashara Jones, Mayor of St. Louis, cooperated with her police chief to move $4 million, I think it's $4 million bucks. Sean yeah, can correct million. me. It's $4 million. Out of the discretionary fund that was going to go to law enforcement to use it for things like affordable housing. And she put a hiring freeze. So she basically like just moved a comma and was like, look, the police department's not understaffed anymore because I'm putting in a hiring freeze. Like, and everyone acted like she walked up to Jefferson city naked with a blowtorch and a can of gasoline. Like she was going to burn <laughs> all the white people. It was insane. Like everyone lost their mind. The, the the first reaction was we're going to have a special session. Um, they tried to take away her power. We've, we've talked about all this right. in the podcast before. Yeah. You all can go back and listen to it. So now a police chief in O'Fallon, Missouri, who used to work in Conroe, Texas. I've been to Conroe, right? It's Conroe's about an hour outside of Houston. You want to talk about one of the most fantastically <laughs> racist ass places I've ever been in my life. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'm never coming back here. Um, I was, so, I was so uncomfortable. I was like, this is not okay. You got like their black neighborhood, quote unquote, is literally like corrugated tin shacks. That's what I'm talking. That's where he used to work. This man, Dupuis, right. we're calling right. him. That's his name. I don't care what his name is. <laughs> that's what he, that's where he used to work. So this is not some woke, whatever. This is a guy who's like, I love the second moment. I think it's great. Right. I understand what they're trying to do. I just think the, I just don't like the language in the bill. Like, dude, come out and say it. Like, come on. Like you're yeah. quitting a job you like because you don't feel like it's safe to enforce sensible laws. So you're quitting yeah. your job. And, and it's in there. The language he used about sovereign immunity. Like that's your tip off right there of like what he's worried about. Right. Cause sovereign immunity is a big, 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 big deal. If you're advising or if you work for a police department, uh, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Um, and that's, that's a big part of what he's worried about. And yeah, that 4 million, you know, that that's Tashara's action on that mayor Jones action on that is being turned into this massive attack. In fact, Jane Duker, who's the attorney for the fraternal order police in St. Louis, uh, she had a tweet today uh, about it. Uh, seven shot in 90 minutes. The safety of the public just isn't a priority. Um, using this this story out of St. Louis, uh, when and we responded on the Heartland Pods Twitter to her, how would the $4 million in as of yet unspent money for not yet hired officers have stopped this shooting? Or are you so desperate to attack uh, Mayor Jones that you're good with using this as political fodder. Uh, it has not had a response to it as of recording. Um, but it's, that's, that's right there. Like that's your nutshell. That's, that's the whole thing in a nutshell. It's, it's an attack to levy, uh, whether it's Eric Schmidt using it to run for Senate or using it to a shack to short attack to Shora Jones. Uh, however they want to use it. That's what it is. It's, it's, right. it's, a, it's a bludgeon. And it. you know, what everybody knows is we do have a problem with violence in this country right. and we definitely have a problem with gun violence. And so prioritizing this law that the whole point is to keep police from disarming someone who otherwise would have been deemed, you know, someone you could lawfully disarm, you know, is just so dumb. I'm really glad that this chief, you know, had such a strongly worded statement and and took such a strong action. You know, when he says, you know, 
every police department in the country seizes weapons during arrests and criminal cases or when officers feel threatened or want to protect someone from committing suicide. And this would allow people to sue the police officer if they thought their Second Amendment rights were infringed upon. That's right. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, sheriffs, this is what's so crazy, because when we did pass red flag here in Colorado, you know, sheriffs in uh, in contrast to chiefs of police are politicians. They're elected. Right. And often, by the way, they're elected often. Right. Like right. constantly. <laughs> yeah. It's not like yeah, a six year office. It's like a two year office. So they're taking, you know, the the politically popular expedient position, um, especially when they live in rural areas. They're like, you know what? I, I think I like it. Um, I like it. Yeah. And it's yeah. just so asinine. Yeah. Well, from an interpretation standpoint, looking at the language, there's a lot of questions out there about what does language mean? What does it do? I think the the easiest way to think about this law is to understand that it it – what it does is it creates a court fight that's going to end in the law being found to be unconstitutional. Um, so, like, that's that's my number one takeaway from it. And then the other thing that it does is it, it's going to hurt uh, federal and state law enforcement combination. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt that ability to share resources, share information, uh, and work together on major cases because of that issue, because there's going to be worry, there's going to be hand-wringing and consternation on what can and can't be done. And so you're going to have folks who, you know, because you got to always remember that when we're talking about law enforcement, we're talking virtually, it's not 100%, but it's very close to it, a reactionary response to something that's already occurred. And typically, the thing that has occurred has a very short window where information is going to be very important in order to solve whatever that problem is, if it's a major problem, if it's a murder, if it's a child abduction, a sex crime, something in, in that vein. Um, and so if you put in what is basically a, a roadblock uh, into, you know, into that conversation, uh, all you've done is make it harder to, to do that job, to do the base level job of investigative work. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see how, if it gets applied at all, if there's any real attempt uh, to apply it. But my guess is it'll be found to be null and void on its on its face. Uh, I don't even think it'll have to be applied. I, I'm assuming that it will be like the heartbeat bill all over again, where it will be signed into law, um, animated former goldfish, spineless Governor <laughs> Mike Parson. Um, I'm just going to say that that's real. He is. He's a goldfish yeah. that woke up like Tom Hanks did in the movie Big. And instead of being a goldfish... <laughs> He was suddenly standing next to his bowl, and he was a man <laughs> who looked like he'd never done a setup ever. Um, and suddenly, he was had a political career. Um, I have no respect for him at all. He's a horrible human being. Uh, anyway, um, I don't even know where that was going to go. Oh, yeah. So all of these things that he's been doing, every single law that he's the most crowy about, when he's like, "I respect the sanctity of life," yeah. Then a week later, a judge puts an injunction on it because they're like, no way is this legal. Right. And then he doesn't talk about it ever again. So this has happened like it happened. He didn't serve a full term the first time and it happened like three times. Right. right. So this is going to happen again. He's going to be all like he's we talked about this last week that he basically said, like, he knows this isn't going to hold up to scrutiny, yeah. Yeah. but he doesn't care. Because matter. he just believes in this. It's because he's really a goldfish. I mean, it all makes right. sense, right? right? Like when you really think about it, that he's really a goldfish. <laughs> and then you're like, no, he just doesn't know what he's doing because he just used to swim in a little bowl. And 
It's at least a more plausible explanation. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it's true. It's totally true. Well, let's move on to uh, another goldfish, Donald Trump, um, and a more of an or I guess that's more of a clownfish than a goldfish. Different kind of setup. Different kind of tank setup. I wouldn't besmirch clownfish like that. Let's that's stick, true. Let's stick with yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Finding Nemo is a fine movie. It is. Um, so the Trump DOJ stuff. We've got the 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 emails. We've got the uh, surveillance, uh, all that stuff. Rachel, get, what do we got to know about this? Um, I, I don't know what's the biggest. It's, it's so, uh, first of all, I want to say again that I try to be one of these people that's like, let's listen to both sides. Let's try to be less partisan. Let's try to reach across the aisle, blah, 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 whatever. Um, I sounded really sincere was always, I used to be, um, I was disgusted uh, by the Republican Party after the Bush administration for the uh, warrantless wiretaps, uh, extrajudicial persecute like prosecutions, um, uh, rendition where they basically took American citizens off the offshore to torture them and then dropped them back in jail wherever they wanted, secret prisons, torture, all of it. Disgusted, disgusted. Not because I was surprised so much that the Bush administration did it, but because I was just flabbergasted that no one in the Republican Party had the nerve, besides like Ron Paul and like two other people, to stand up and say, this is absolutely fantastically not okay. Right. Um, fast forward to now, where Trump's Justice Department apparently was just spying on, we don't even know yet who. So we, we know that Apple received uh, quite a few uh, sealed warrants from the Justice Department saying we need data from these phones. We need yeah. all kinds of information from these phones. We still don't exactly know. We There are members of Congress, uh, including Adam Schiff, probably in response to the Russia investigation. Uh, and um, we would like, they. so they were probably listening to staff members. They, they were listening to at least one child, maybe more. Um, and the Republican Party response was basically like, nah, like, I don't even know, like th- their response basically when this happened was like, well, these tech companies have too much power. Like, no, they don't. Right. They were right. served warrants. Like, they don't have a choice. You can't, as Apple say, well, just because you're the Department of Justice and just because you give us warrants like all the time and a lot of them are sealed, we're just going to say no to this. And this right. is not a similar situation to many years ago. Um, which Trump hated, by the way, if you all remember this, when they were terrorists in California and their phones were seized and they were locked and the Justice Department, Obama's Justice Department wanted a back, FBI rather, wanted a back door, um, a permanent back door to Apple's basically like uh, technology suite to be able to just hack phones whenever they wanted. And Apple was like, oh no, 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 we're not doing that. Forget that. This is different. These are warrants. This is perfectly, I mean, it should be legal. Um, so but it is a good example, that, just to really quick to point yeah, that out, of course. The, the, the power of tech. Like, it's a really good example of, like, well, tech's too powerful. Are they too powerful? Because the federal government came knocking and they literally had no power. Right, exactly. Like, they can't not, say, they can't not do it. And, in fact, they, the, one of the reasons that we know about this is because they have to – 
they're I don't this is this is a, this is something for a lawyer to say. I'm not going to do this right, but they basically can't say anything for a certain amount of time. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a gag order that gets put in place on these because you don't want the person to know that the yeah. data is being used because you don't want them to change the way that they're behaving. The behavior is right, know. so it's yeah, good because it's, it makes that makes the enforcement that much more difficult. We've all seen right. those TV shows. Right. We've all seen it. Um, so 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 Apple was under a gag order for two years. So, which all coincides to when um, Trump was being investigated for his, you know, potentially meddling with Russia. All, again, we've talked about how I think that was all way overstated and um, a, a bit of a witch hunt. I, I wouldn't disagree with some of that, by the way. But anyway, whatever. So that definitely was the same time frame. So Apple finally got to release some of these uh, so, some of these records, and around the same time, we find out that oh, what a surprise! Donald Trump tried to force his Justice Department to nullify the election against Joe Biden in yet another venue. So he'd been shot down in court. Um, I think he was on his third acting attorney general at that point. Is that right? He, none of these people, like he, he'd gone through yeah, so many attorney generals right. yeah, that, that they hadn't even had time to be confirmed. Even his not confirmed acting attorney general was like, I don't think I can do this. Like, the, so there's a bunch of emails that are going back that went back and forth between uh, Trump staffers and the DOJ and the DOJ being like, I don't care that Rudy Giuliani wants to meet with us. He can yeah. file a police report. Like, what is he, he, they were talking about the, the, uh, the, the, the video, the YouTube video uh, where the guy saying that like Italian hackers had meddled with voting machines from Italy right. or what it was also like, all of this was still, this is while they were trying to stop the steel stuff and the, uh, protests were going on in Arizona right. and all these like nonsense uh, lawsuits were being thrown out. And so out of desperation, the Trump administration um, tried to hijack the election. Um, and it's not a good look for Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, uh, who basically was just trying to twist anybody's arm um, that he could. And he was being laughed off. Uh, yeah. And to my point about being absolutely disgusted with senior ranking Republican leadership at this point in time, if this had happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago, if Bill Clinton had been president and this happened, if Barack Obama had been president and this happened, if George H.W. Bush had been president and this happened, they would have lost their minds. They would be on fire. They would be like, can we, can we impeach him again? Like, yeah. I know he's not in office anymore, but like, is it possible? Like, what are we going to do? Can we do, let's, let's get the FBI involved. Let's get law enforcement involved. Let's like, and like, in fact, when some of them found out that like, oh, guess what? The NSA has been spying on you too, because the NSA had cast such a wide net during, uh, in, in the, in the follow-up to, to, uh, the nine 11 attacks that some members of Congress are like, you've been spying on me. And they're like, well, yeah, we kind of have, they, they were like, well, no, you can spy on Democrats, but you can like, basically they were like, well, you can spy on Democrats, but you can't spy on Republicans. Right. Um, and now they don't even have the 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 nerve to do that. Like it's, it, I, I don't know. Like we're in upside down land. I don't even know how to. I, I know I'm kind of incoherently baffling. But because the whole thing is such a, it's. I expect the Trump administration to be corrupt and incompetent and amoral yeah. and criminal and full of shit and whatever. What staggers me is that if Mitch McConnell or one of them would just say. Oh, we're done. This is insane. Um, there would still probably be members of the, this is probably why they won't do it. I think there still would be a shifting of the base being like, yeah, that's pretty bad, right? Yeah, we should probably maybe consider that this whole stop the steal was kind of a lie. But yeah. um, 
they just won't. Uh, I mean, they're they're still trying to. There there were members of Congress last week that were saying the problem isn't that the Trump Department tried to weaponize its own Department of Justice, which is a terrible look, by the way, for the U.S. internationally. It's just disgraceful. Um, they were more upset that the J- the DOJ turned down Meadows. Right, right, right. Like, how dare you deny the president? Like, what are you talking about? Well, now they're trying to block the Senate inquiry into the <laughs> into the of Justice Department's seizure. Of course they are. I mean, all of it. Yeah, all of it's happening. It's 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 wild. Sean, what are you weighing on the politics of this? Yeah. So absolutely. So I mean, I think you know we're seeing this this trend that we've seen since Trump came onto the the scene where Republicans in power are terrified of doing anything that he won't approve of. Right. And, you know, Democrats, you know, what I keep thinking about is, you know, when I think about voters, you know, I get, I get all upset, you know, when the, uh, the independence of the justice department, you know, is besmirched to use your word. <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> um, I don't think most people are like that. <laughs> I don't think yeah. people. And I think that's probably where these Republicans are coming from. They're, they're frantically like, well, no, didn't you, you know, Nikki Haley said it really good. Um, you know, smaller Republicanism means that everybody has to do what Trump says and let's just leave it there. Like, let's not pull the thread, right. but it's definitely not you know, think about whether anyone did anything wrong at the Justice Department unless it's that they disobeyed the president. And they're kind of really locked in this, another like intellectually untenable position, but politically, you know, I don't think it's any big deal for them. I don't think this is going to cause Republicans to sweat at all, um, at all. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's probably true. And that kind of leads us to the next topic. Uh, Part of the reason that a lot of Republicans won't sweat about it is redistricting. Uh, And the 2020 census has occurred. Data will start to, you know, be be applied from that in the coming year or so as that gets, you know, put out. But redistricting maps are going to happen. Uh, And I'm just going to say, folks, get ready for cracking and packing because it sure looks like it's going to happen. There's a... uh, Missouri Municipal League article uh, that, again, you know, we we bring a lot of stuff out of Missouri, but um, it's fairly applicable across the board. These laws are are fairly similar as you go state to state on how they're going to work and uh, all of that. So, um, you know, it's going to be about these trying to make these areas where, uh, you know, some of the maps that are getting leaked out are showing splitting like Kansas City and St. Louis and you kind of start the point of a district in the middle of the population centers and then you sort of like a pie a piece of pie kind of spread it out from there so that you cut you know Kansas City into south central and north same thing with St. Louis uh you know you you lump Columbia in with a ton of rural area so that Columbia has no real impact on the outcome of the elections uh it's it just it looks like it's coming. It looks like it's coming uh, to Missouri right now. Sean, uh, with what you do for a living, I assume redistricting is on your mind. Uh, what do we need to know here? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot to know. Yeah, I mean, one is that a ton of people, it seems to me, are waiting on whether they're going to run for Congress or not to see what these maps look like. Right. Makes um, a big difference. Yeah, yeah. And so this happens once every 10 years. And so, you know, that would be a fun little, uh, you know, research project for someone in undergrad or something poli sci, like, 
when do people start jumping in on redistricting years compared to other years? Because it does seem late. And so what that will mean is that like outsider candidates are going to have less time to to put together their coalition. And, you know, sure. the bigger the bigger thing is what you're saying is, especially in states where it's a very partisan redistricting process and one party, especially if it's the Republicans, when they control everything, the Supreme Court recently ruled that partisan gerrymandering is constitutional. And I, um, this is another one where I'm on the other side with most of the libs, but you know, I saw that coming a mile away, like redistricting is a state level political thing. Right. Right. (laughs) It was no no different than the rulings that were made on the 2020 election where the Supreme court was just like, no states can do what they want with their election laws go away. Right. Yeah. There can be one ballot box in Harris County. That's, um, you know, that's, that's right. what the state can do. But yeah, I'm looking at Kansas City and Emanuel Cleaver's district. It it already has a few counties of rural northern right. uh, Missouri. And so the new district is, or the new map for Missouri, seems like it probably will. Dave Wasserman is a, is a political analyst who is doing maps for all the states and, you know, kind of guessing what they might look right. like. And taking into account, you know, like here in Colorado, we have an independent redistricting process and a democratic uh, good government, you know, kind of legislature. So we're going to get a new seat here and we're going to have a new competitive district and all of our districts might get a little bit more competitive. So in states like that, that'll there will be tons of action. And that's really, really exciting Um, in Missouri. You know, it looks like there might go from just two Democrats out of eight members of Congress to one. Right. And Kansas City is going to be split, like you're saying, into into three districts where Republicans have a huge advantage. So, you know, it could definitely, um, you know, have a have a big impact on on Democrats ability to hold the House for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that that's probably true. I, I did hear I did hear Ryan Grimm of uh, the Intercepts uh, and now rising talking about like he did his own analysis and. There are people that basically say because of what Sean just said about Colorado, potentially Texas, um, maybe New Mexico, although I doubt it's probably too soon, potentially Phoenix, um, that it could be a wash. Like that, that in fact, um, because there will be uh, enough population growth in some of those places where you're going to get more competitive districts, the Republicans may not get as much advantage as they hope. Um, and of course, that's very short-term thinking. We have to do yeah. this for we have to live with this for ten years. Um, still interesting yeah, though. I, I haven't heard that. That that's very yeah. I, I that was a, that was a while ago. I, I I should have pulled. I should have pulled it up. Um, and so you know, again, this goes back to like Bill Maher says. Has like this is like probably going to be the last words on his breath when he dies. Is that like they win because they cheat? You know, right? This is how <laughs> Republicans do politics. They do it right in front of your face. They're super brazen about it. Um, they're really good at it. <laughs> yeah they're really good at like meddling in state politics it's their it's their it's their true superpower um yeah, yeah i mean well when talking. you say it that way when i put when you put that fact together that republicans are really brazen about using the political process to benefit their side disproportionately in a way that democrats are not willing to do i mean i don't know why <laughs> right right uh, but that that fact um oh shoot I lost it. Damn it. I remember what I was going to say. It's like a sneeze. It's like right there. And you're like, Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, I think so. I, I, to, 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 to kind of come back on what you just said about like the Democrats don't, 
um, they very rarely have the opportunity. We're yeah. a really conservative country. Yeah. And um, the, the big difference between like, what are the, what are the sort of like false equivalencies between like the far, there's also, I think always tons of false equivalencies between like the far right and the far left as if like the extremes of both sides are right. you know, equally proportionately disruptive and I, which I don't agree with at all. Um, the truth is, is that the reason it's more difficult for Democrats to do shitty things is because their voters would never let them get away with it. That's right. Because we actually like their base pays, doesn't vote as, there's not as many of us and not, not nearly enough of us vote, but the ones that do vote pay way too much attention to some degree. Right. And we kind of follow the bouncing ball in a little bit of a different way. Republican yeah. voters like it when their side coalesces power because by and large they're they're still led by predominantly evangelical voters there's still just a ton of religious people on the right and because they feel like they have god and morals on their side cheating feels justified to them and they tell themselves it's not cheating they're like well it's okay because they because everybody does these things you know everybody 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 cheats everybody lies everybody no we don't (laughs) like let's be clear we don't but um the the I think when you look at places like Ohio, um, when you look at places like uh, uh, Wisconsin, when you look at places like that, like Michigan, like that's where it starts to get really terrifying because you've got these big old, you know, kind of former Rust Belt cities that are sort of sitting in the middle of these states um, that they know have uh, kind of a, a sort of a formidable Democratic base and right. I would break, I would break us up too. I mean, if that's what I was trying to do, if I was trying to sort of make uh, bulletproof elections in States where uh, populations are dwindling and uh, the older, the the base is primarily older voters and stuff like that, I would be doing the exact same thing probably if I was a Republican. Yeah, no, it definitely, yeah, it's nakedly political. There's no question about it, but that's sort of the MO. I think you, you hit that on the head. Well, uh, that, that'll wrap up our talk in politics and a uh, quick, quick break. And we'll jump into the last call. Last call. All right. I have a, a slight refill on this Templeton. Uh, not too much. It's the barrel strength. So take, take her easy. Um, last call here, party identity. Uh, I talked about it some in the open. It's something that I, it's driven me nuts for a long time. Honestly, until Donald Trump was in office, I had never paid any dues or any type of formal association with the Democratic Party. I had given money to them. I'd given money to Republicans. I voted for both. Even since Donald Trump has been in office, uh, I've done that. Um, so, you know, the, the question is kind of, does it, does it matter? Um, and I just, you know, dealing with these sort of ridiculous farcical arguments that you hear, uh, usually thrown from Republicans toward Democrats, uh, like Democrats fought for slavery, uh, or, you know, Republicans claiming Lincoln, the party of Lincoln and the, you know, the party of abolition because we're the party of freedom. Uh, you know, I just, I'm so sick of, of this sort of religiosity of political identity. And I don't know, a, I'm not sure how we solve it. Um, you know, I think we've, we're starting to understand where it came from in the really the 50s and 60s uh, when it sort of started. Ezra Klein, as much as I don't love Ezra Klein all the time, he does have a decent book, uh, Why We're So Polarized, that's a worthy read on this topic. But, um, 
Sean, you're the 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 campaign worker. What you start us off on that? Yeah, well, I started thinking of it from a million different angles as soon as you asked. You know, kind of party identity does it matter? And so, I guess let me ask you, kind of, do you mean the identity of you know I as a voter think of myself as a Democrat, Republican, or Independent, or do you mean like do the do the parties know who they are? Like, does the party have an identity? Oh, yeah, that's deep. Um, I think. Yeah, I didn't intend the second one, but I think it's a worthy addition to the discussion for sure um, because it definitely matters. That that definitely matters a ton. But you've got a third part too, which I would say, which is what is the other side's understanding of the national party, right? What is – if you're a, if you identify as a Republican, what is your interpretation of the identity right. of a Democrat? And that's what I was actually going to go straight into because it really does matter – when it comes to how the national parties decide who they're going to try to talk to at all. Mm. And so in a state where, you know, a state like Missouri, where, you know, maybe statewide it's like 60, 40 Republican Democrat, but in some areas it's, you know, 80, 20 Democrat Republican. And in other areas it's, you know, 50, 50 down the middle, you know, when, when one party decides that this area is so out of reach for them that they're never going to spend any money there, then the other party can really say whatever they want. And so when you talk about like, you know, what's the other person going to, what's the voter going to think about the other party, the non-favored party, you know, we see it all the time today um, with the, the, you know, just thinking that the Democrats are socialists, you know, having a high level Republican like Vicki Hartzler just, say the socialist Democrats need to be kicked back to Venezuela because this country is about freedom and everyone's heads nodding. It's because they haven't ever heard an alternative. Yeah. And, you know, I blame the Democrats for a lot of things. (laughs) Um, And, and one of them is definitely that, you know, looking at numbers, looking at data that tells them, well, people don't really, these aren't really our kind of people. So let's move on and try to talk to someone else. Yeah. Rachel. Um, I mean, I, I think all of that is uh, superbly uh, accurate and, and unfortunate. Um, and also it's, you know, we're a really, really big country. And I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a statistic uh, during the election season that I'd never heard before, which is that Americans vote or, or at least are asked to vote more frequently than anyone else in the world Yeah, because we vote for so many things and we have to vote so often. Um, and so of course, at some point you start to get a little bit, you kind of start to zone out. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, it's taken us, uh, most of my life to get where we are right now. Uh, yeah. and I, I, th- this is kind of cartoonishly simplifying it. I know I've been talking about cartoonish Republicans. I'm going to say something cartoonish right now. Um, most of my adult life politics has looked a lot like this Republicans saying, batshit crazy things during elections that don't make any sense, that don't have to make any sense um, because they are campaigning to an increasingly conservative, older religious base that's largely white. Yeah. And the Democrats campaign strategy has been, what are you going to vote for them? That's right. it. <laughs> right. Right. That's been it. That's been it since like probably nights, the mid eighties. That's a good say. summary of the, of the Trump administration too, right? Like, the whole 90% of the democratic outrage that you would hear or, you know, the stuff that would make it into 
most of the podcasts and the news and whatever, wherever you were going for information was about the outrage of Donald Trump just being kind of an asshole. Like, and, and as opposed to his failure to do anything except for give a tax cut to billionaires and the richest among us, um, or whatever the policies that he was actually trying to push, push digging into those and explaining why they were bad, or if there was a good one, how we might be able to work with you. You know, let's show some bipartisanship or whatever. Instead, it was just he's just such a he's some a meanie. You know, he's just such a mean guy. And did you hear what he said about women? Did you hear what he, you know when he made fun of that disabled reporter? Have you seen that? It's like yeah, fucking a well, thousand was, times. Those, those were most of Hillary Clinton's campaign ads, right? Bucket right, of remember the one of like a little stuff. girl watching Trump on television? Yes. And he was he was doing the really grotesque. And awful. by the way, like as the father of a six year old who came to being like during all of this was born in 2015, um, they definitely did see that. Like he absolutely like spontaneously during the election cycle said that he thinks Joe Biden should be president because Donald Trump is not a very nice guy, and like so that was per you know it was perceived by children, but. They don't vote. So, you know, that's a problem. And I, I think I, I, I would be curious to hear what Sean has to say about this. So um, I, I think most people are small letter pol- part politi- politically affiliated, right? Like I, I'm not, I, I've never, and I don't say this in any sort of like humble brag way or whatever. Like, I've always known the reason that I was going to register as a Democrat anywhere I lived was because it kind of mattered who I voted for in certain primary races and no earthly way when I lived in say like Arizona, was I going to vote for a Republican in Arizona because (laughs) Arizona was a precursor to what Missouri was like now, like, you know, Barry Goldwater. So we've talked about Arizona before. Like I, I have a a strange relationship politically with Arizona anyway. Um, so it wasn't because I was like, I love them. I love the Clintons. You know, they're great. Um, so happy with my house member. No, like I thought it was like a pretty, like a pretty mixed bag. I was like, I get it. Like that's the only place in town that's it's the only place I'm going to go. It's like, it's, right. it's like going to like, there's one vegetarian restaurant. <laughs> right. Right. I'm going right, to eat right. there whatever. Um, but I think now like both parties have to sit up. I don't know. I still think that the 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 Russian roulette the Republicans are playing right now is a short-term game. I don't I think the tables if we can fucking hold it together in this country um uh, just a little while longer, uh, you know, if we can keep uh, god forbid uh, a reasonable person um whether it's Biden or anybody in office for another four years, yeah. whether it's we can watch the remainders of, of Trump's popularity wash up on the shore. I think we're going to have a, a period of time where the fact that like breaking points is the most popular political podcast in America right now. Yeah. And it's helmed by two people who are like, I'm not happy with them either. Right. What we want are more populist policies and populist policies are popular with people that can consider themselves to be both on the left and on the right. And yeah. that's the problem that both parties are going to have to reconcile themselves with ultimately. Right, right. You're exactly right. You know, the Republicans are going to have to reconcile that, you know, their populism is bullshit 
because they don't actually do anything for regular folks. And Republicans or Democrats are going to have to get over the fact that they're afraid of <laughs> anything populist. Right. But you're exactly right. And I think that is where, you know, we have a big moment in our in our country's democracy where this is going to get sorted out. You know, there's so much power consolidated in Mitch McConnell's hands and he's able to kind of toe this line of like he as a person and a, as a political force operates for the benefit of large corporations, period. Right. You know, and then Republicans are saying the Republican Party. Right. right. And, and, you know, other Republicans are saying we're the we're the party of the working class. You know, they're not saying that we're the party of small businesses like they used to. They're saying we're the party of the working class and people aren't buying trickle down economics anymore. And so. It's all up for grabs. And so, yeah, I was going to say, but, you know, on party identity, you know, you said that you, you registered as a Democrat because you thought it might matter who you vote for in certain primaries. And I think that's a great example of why most people, you know, of how, you know, it's not how most people think about politics. They think it doesn't matter who they vote for ever Almost in a primary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it does not matter who they vote for and it and doesn't to, not I, matter. And I used yeah. to think like it most of the time didn't because right. most people in the States like that run unopposed. I mean, I lived in Tucson. It was like a primarily, like it was like the little dot of blue in the sea. Of well, most people think it doesn't matter because politicians because they're are full all of corrupt. shit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're not going to change anything. Right. And so it, it really does, you know, in these places where there's a lot of people who are disillusioned with both parties, kind of like what I was talking before, if, if the national parties decide that it's not worth spending money in your state and you live in a highly populous suburb that might be up for grabs, then you might only hear a steady diet of, you know, really hot racist rhetoric from the Republicans about what the Democrats want to do. And it's all fake, but even though you hate politics and you're not going to think about politics until you walk into the voting booth, yeah, you will have heard that the Democrats want to destroy America. And you're like, wait, I live here. I, I don't want to, I guess I, I guess yeah. I want the Republican. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, so, I mean, it's we're, certainly, yeah. There, I, know, I can't think of the name of the song. There's a song that's like, there's a song that says in the title, like it's the same old song. And I can't, there, there is that song, but I, whatever. Uh, that was going to be a really clever joke. And I just, I just crapped all over it. Um, but you know, that's the tune they've been whistling. I love the eighties by Rachel. Yeah. I don't know what that was. I'm sorry. That was bad. It was really bad listeners. I apologize. Um, but I, I mean, this is the song that I've been hearing my whole life. You know, that if we have, if we have public infrastructure of any kind, we're just going to magically become socialists. And when they say socialists, they mean communists. So if we have right. healthcare, we're going to become a totalitarian, uh, single party state which is what Missouri is, but never mind. Um, and if we have uh, a minimum wage. Yeah, if we have a minimum wage, if we have like a people, if we pay people enough. Um, and uh, I, I think, part, so this is something I was saying to some friends last week um, that I think part of, and this is anecdotal, right? I think part of the, the narrative of it doesn't matter who you vote for kind of started because when I was younger, it sort of didn't because our generation, so people my age, when we were young, could not budge any political, we had no political capital. We were so outnumbered. So we lived at the mercy of our parents' generation 
and like the, the boomers in general, right? No. Um, we just couldn't move the needle. We wanted to. I think a lot of people did. I think a lot of people were like, we don't want abortion to be illegal. We want weed to be legal. Like this is all crazy. And then you would watch the messaging of the Democratic Party and they're like, do they know we're here? Do they give a shit? And the answer was no, they don't because there's not enough of you. If we just talk to young Gen X voters, we're all going to lose national elections, period, the end. And they never broke that habit. And so they're still having conversations, I think, largely with older suburban voters. And I'm not ageist. I am an older voter. Like, I'm not an ageist person. But I think that's where a lot of this sort of the atrophying of the messaging happened on both in both parties, where they were right. just like, well, we just have to talk to these people that are either, they either hate communists and abortion, or they just don't want to vote for people that hate communists and abortion. So we have to figure out how to talk to them. And the rest of us were like, I guess it doesn't matter. And I think it did disenfranchise a lot of people. Yeah. And so, you know, going forward, the the I think the writing's kind of on the wall. Like, are you are you going to are you really going to start to take your power back voters? Are yeah. you really going to think? Are you really going to be thoughtful? Um, I don't really care who, how you register as a voter, but are you going to fact check what people say? Um, are you going to hold people accountable? Are you going to donate money to the politicians that you like? If you don't like corporate America, if you don't like bought and sold politicians, you have to make campaign contributions. Yeah. So it, yeah. if it, it's there for the taking, it really is. Like Sean said, like it's kind of there. For, it's not easy. It's, but it's never been easy. Well, and I think it's there for the taking for senior level Democrats in Washington, D.C. You know, let go of January 6th. You know, what you do about it is not going to affect any working class voters in Louisiana. You know, my my hypothesis is that national Democrats are probably annoyed that uh, a Democrat, John Bell Edwards, won another term as governor right. in Louisiana. They'd love to just let it go because people in the South are all stupid. And it's like, oh, wait, we won. Right. I guess I guess we're still there. You know, but they right. they don't have anything to offer. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, I think it's on everybody to do better. I think and Rachel I think, hit it. It's the same old song. <laughs> and I think we do have to say that one of the tropes, and this is if there's a theme that I have in my life right now that I just want to keep saying over and over and over again, is that if you go to certain parts of South County in St. Louis, so if you go to certain certain parts of South St. Louis County, you are going to find people who are as racist. openly racist as they are anywhere in Alabama or Mississippi or Tennessee or whatever openly, they just can't put Confederate flags in the front yard. They just can't. That that wouldn't, that would not go over well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, they can put Blue Lives Matter f- flags in their yards and stuff, but they can't quite put Confederate. They probably have them in their basement, but they're not in the front yard. They're not so, offended when they see them. That's for sure. Cor- no, correct. So, so, but the rest, there's parts of St. Louis County that are not at all like that, right? Yeah. There's this thing, it's called diversity. So there's diversity of thought, right? And just because somebody doesn't have a Confederate flag in the yard doesn't necessarily mean that the most woke people, um, but on that note, every single town in rural America is not exclusively populated by racists. That's right. And every single town in Missouri, there are plenty of towns in Missouri that are not at all racist. And yeah. you know what Democrats really need to get since we're on a little tear? You know, Go I don't ahead, usually Sean. Go give ahead, them Sean. too much tough love. There's trans kids in shit ass little <laughs> towns in rural America. 
And, yep. you know, they you need can't someone ban- standing can't- up. There, there's also Republicans in those towns that aren't racist assholes. Right. And that that's important. Like, Democrats writ large, big D Democrats, right? Like, there is this openly hostile treatment of Republicans that trickle-down economics doesn't work, but trickle-down party identity does. And this openly hostile treatment where if you back a Republican on anything, you're going to get attacked for being a racist is so stupid and it's anathema to any kind of progress. Like it just takes the hand, you know, we, I talked about pragmatism some in the open, and I'm going to talk about it a ton more. I'll do a, a, an in-depth episode about the, the school of thought. But you can't have pragmatic solutions to problems that progress society if you're not allowed to have an open conversation with somebody whose label next to their name excludes them from free thought. It's just – it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I was taught that same conversation where I was, what I was mentioning, um, uh, you know, where I was, where I was saying to people, I think that a lot of this conversation about like, we can't do anything and there was no, there was no point in voting and all that, like that really, I really felt like that certainly existed before I was young, but it, it, I think it came to, yeah. came to fruition, um, as I got a little bit older, um, Another, so we were having, we were having a conversation and the, the the question came up, would I, meaning me, vote for, if I had the chance to vote for a Republican running for Senate who was pro-life, but was also pro-Medicare for all yeah. and pro $15 an hour minimum wage right. and supportive of environmental legislation, would I do it? And I was like, of course. Yeah, not a question. I've, of course, in Missouri. I mean, maybe yeah. not in Los Angeles. I'd be like, "What? What's up with you, buddy?" But no, here in a heartbeat, yeah. I would vote for that person for governor. Right. I would. Yeah. I would. I would. I would grab a Republican. Because you can. There are open primaries in Missouri. You can grab yeah. either a either either ballot when you're. Which at, it should at the be polling place. everywhere, but anyway. Of course, yeah, I would totally do it. But I mean, that's not going to happen. So it's sort of a kind of a silly thought experiment. But of course I would do that. And he said, well, I think you're probably, you know, one of very few people. And I was like, oh, you're probably right. That's probably true. Um, but that's because, like, I'm so desperate for a change in narrative. Yeah. And I've accepted as wrong as I think that it is. I don't think the Missouri Democratic Party should change their stance on choice. That's terrible. But I think, like, if given the opportunity to, if I had, if there was a Republican running on the Senate side who wasn't insane, I would give my vote to that person before I would vote in the Democratic Senate primary just to get someone on the ballot right. who wasn't a lunatic, right? right. Yeah. I totally would. Um, and I think that's how, if I, if I could like plant one idea in the head of a suburban white Democrat who lives in California or New York or wherever, that would be my theme. Be like, listen, yeah, <laughs> you can't judge us anymore. Stop it. Like, stop judging us for what we do. Stop the desperation when we are clawing to keep somebody like Claire McCaskill in office. Right. And you have the audacity 
to get on a national. What is wrong with you people voting for her? She's just as bad. No, she's not. Right. <laughs> right. No, she isn't. Right. At all. She's not great. I'm not. Th- I wasn't enamored with her. Right. But my God, there were so many people that worked so hard to keep her because we knew what would happen if she lost. Right. Guess what? It was end up with a Nazi. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, on that note, uh, a couple of quick housekeeping things. So Jane Duker did uh, reply. She said that more policing. Uh, more police means less crime, right? It's, it's that simple. No police. That means more crime. That simple. So that's her entire theory of Did the case. Did she miss the 90s and the war on drugs? Was she <sighs> sleeping for that? Was she alive? Yeah, she's doing her job. Um, okay. So, and uh, it's the same old song as originally popularized um, by the Four Tops, although later uh, found evidence that the Supremes may have recorded it first. Not a shocker there. Uh, and then re-recorded, and I'm going to go out on a limb, Rachel, and I'm going to guess that the reason that that song is in your head and that you know it is because it was re-recorded in 1978 by KC and the Sunshine Band. And there's oh. also a song called All Around the World is the Same Song by Digital Underground, and I think that's the one that I was trying to think of. Damn. But anyway. That sounds much cooler. <laughs> All right, well that's uh that's the show. Uh thank you both for joining me again as always and I'll see you next week. Thanks you guys. Thanks. Heartland Pod is a production of Midmap Media LLC. Hosts Rachel Parker, Sean Diller and Adam Summer, produced by Adam Summer. Find more at The Heartland Pod on Twitter and at heartlandpod.com. <laughs>